thank everyone here for coming out in the rain. Uh, I and Father Virgil are very thankful for the invitation by the CAP Center to appear here today to discuss uh, my book on Father Virgil's life. I want to thank Dean David Marshall for being here and for his supportive comments. The finalization of the Cordano Chair in Catholic Studies would not have occurred without his guidance and mediation. Uh, although Congre Congresswoman Lois, Lois, Lois Capps could not be with us today, I want to thank her, SS Father Virgil, for writing the foreword to the book and for her generous support for our project. When asked by our publisher to come up with someone to write the foreword, I immediately thought of Lois Capps. Her relationship with Father Virgil and that of her late husband and our colleague Walter Capps, whose name graces this center, goes back four decades and has been a relationship of love and mutual respect. I, of course, want to especially thank the Walter H. Capps Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life for hosting the, this event. I want to thank not only Professor Roof, but Leonard Wallach, the Associate Director, for all the work he does at the center and for putting together this event. Walter Capps, for those who knew him and for those who didn't, was a remarkable individual who fulfilled one of Father Virgil's central beliefs. The more you give of yourself to others, the more you receive back. I'm sure that Walter is with us today, and especially with his old friend Father Virgil, and that he has read and hopefully enjoyed our book. I also want to thank the Father Virgil Cordano Endowed Chair Endowment in Catholic Studies and the Department of Religious Studies along with History and Chicano Studies for sponsoring and co-sponsoring our presentation. About five years ago, I was sitting at a meeting of Bishop Thomas Curry's committee to fund an endowed chair in Catholic Studies that would be named after Father Virgil Cardano. An endowed chair is a distinguished position for a scholar who has produced a major body of research. It carries with it a sizable uh, fund for research and programmatic development. Across from me at the meeting was an elderly, white-haired, rosy-cheeked priest dressed in the traditional brown robes of the Franciscan order. This was Father Virgil Cardano. As I looked at him, hopefully not staring, it dawned on me that his story needed to be told. Here we were working to put together this endowed chair to bear Father Virgil's name, and I, for one, but certainly perhaps others, didn't know much about who he is. Not only that, but Father Virgil is one of the most, if not the most, recognizable figure in Santa Barbara. But this, despite this, I had my doubts as to how many others knew of his story. I decided right there and then to approach him to see about putting together his life story through oral history. Father Virgil, I said to him at the conclusion of the meeting, I'd like to start doing some interviews with you about your history. Would that be all right? I'm sure that he didn't know the extent of my proposal, but generous with his time as he always is with everyone, he agreed to see me. That day, the day I arrived at the beautiful Santa Barbara Mission for our first interview, I told Father Virgil more of my ideas of doing a full life story treatment of him. I'm not sure even then that he fathomed all this, that all this would entail, but he agreed to accommodate me. The first interview that started with the origins of his family in Italy was only the first of many such meetings that stretched out over almost four years. It was a delightful four years and an inspiring time. Inspiring because of Father Virgil's story and his deep faith in the ability of all of us to transcend our differences. Our differences, our divisions, our suspicions, our fears, our selfishness, and even pettiness to achieve a common humanity as the children of God, a God of many face or no face. But I should say that there was a deeper genealogy to the production of Father Virgil's story, some of it based on my own autobiography. I suppose I could say that it began with my own Catholic background growing up in El Paso, Texas, and attending Catholic schools there. I suppose it had to do with the evolution of my own religious faith and the impact of maturity, political consciousness, academic career, marriage, and family on it. I suppose it had to do with working with graduate students in the 1990s on religious studies themes. It certainly has to do with my involvement 
with Father Virgil Elizondo, the other Virgil in my life, one of the leading Latino theologians in the United States. And it certainly has to do with my connection to Monica Bulger, who in many ways inspired the movement to establish the Cordano Chair in Catholic Studies. It was Monica who not only had the inspiration, but the courage to call attention to the need for Catholic Studies at UCSB. She is, in my opinion, the Joan of Arc of the Catholic Studies movement on the campus, but without the persecution. Monica, stand up so everyone can give you a big hand of appreciation. I'm very proud of this book. It's a beautifully published book. Thanks to the commitment and support of our publisher, Bob Basin of Capra Press, a distinguished press in Santa Barbara, whose roots go back several decades, and whose authors include Henry Miller, Ross McDonald, Edward Abbey, Anise Nin, Ray Bradbury, and Lawrence Durrell. It's a daunting lineup to be a part of. But I'm proud of this book also because at an academic level, although told in accessible language, and the two are not mutually exclusive, it addresses some of the major conditions and changes of the Catholic Church in the United States during the 20th century as witnessed through the eyes and experiences of Father Virgil. This book is a micro-study of a macro or larger issues. It reinforces a basic belief that I and others who write history from the margins hold that history is made, as Howard Zinn recently reminded us, not just by the elite and by the dominant institutions that they control, but by ordinary men and women in their local settings. This is Zinn's People's History of the United States, and Father Virgil's story is a part of it. The larger issues that Father Virgil's story is in dialogue with involve the evolution of the church from a largely immigrant institution in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to a permanent position in U.S. society and the largest religious denomination in the country. It involves the church's own spiritual journey, paralleling Father Virgil's spiritual journey, from a more traditional and orthodox faith to one that as a result of Vatican Council II in the 1960s witnessed new winds of change and diversity. And in our most recent past, it is about the challenges the church, about the challenges that to, the, to the church, not from without, but from within, as it struggles to deal with crisis and questions about its shepherds. All of these moments and many more, this book addresses through the perspective of Father Virgil's life. Hence, Father Virgil's autobiography is more a collective autobiography than it is the more traditional individualistic one. And that is certainly very appropriate for one who identifies with the Franciscan order and his church. Let me, at this point, just talk a little bit uh, in general about what the book covers in terms of Father Virgil's story just in passing, and perhaps uh, when Father Virgil comes up here and talks uh, about uh, the book and about maybe even reading some passages, we can reinforce that. Father Virgil's story begins, as our book begins, with his family that uh, originated in Italy, in northern Italy, and the family uh, came as so many other immigrants from Italy and other parts of Eastern and Southern Europe began to come in the late 19th, early 20th century as the so-called new immigrants to the United States. His family was a poor family, relatively poor family in Italy, uh, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why they came as so many others came. And in his case, his Italian uh, family came all the way here to California and eventually settled in Sacramento, where the family eked out a living uh, and this was also a, uh, an extended family. Some of the, the family uh, went into agriculture. But his own parents, uh, who met here in California, uh, eked out a living. It was very difficult. His father had very, very many different kinds of jobs. Uh, when Father Virgil and his four other siblings were growing up, his mother had to carry much of the load as well. She worked many types of jobs as a, in the canneries. Uh, as, a, as a janitor, uh, cleaning buildings and so forth. And so the family grew up in Sacramento. That's where Father Virgil was born, December 3rd, 1918, uh, and uh, grew up, and he began to go to the schools there, the Catholic schools. His parents, his, certainly his mother, was very insistent that he get a good Catholic education. 
And, um, and he did, and, uh, but he also tried to help his mother from time to time in terms of working also. Uh, around the time that he was uh, entering junior high or thereabouts, he began to believe that he had a vocation to the priesthood, to become a priest. And he thought seriously about it. Uh, at a certain point, uh, his mother re- realizes this. Uh, and, but he decides not to, to immediately move on it. And so he goes on to high school, Catholic high school in Sacramento. But he still has this belief that he has this calling to become a priest. And so eventually he, um, he moves on that. And he tells his mother, his father, by the way, already has died when Father Virgil was quite young. And so it basically was his mother that raised him and his four other brothers. And uh, his mother is somewhat uh, like all good mothers. I mean, she doesn't want her son to go away. He's only 14, almost 15. And, uh, but eventually she agrees. And so Father Virgil comes here to Santa Barbara to St. Anthony's Seminary. And this is where he starts his long uh, uh, journey uh, to, become a, to become a priest in the Catholic Church, and specifically in the Franciscan Order, the Order of St. Francis. And uh, he, spends, he concludes his high school years here in, at St. Anthony's. Uh, he also uh, uh, does his first two years in college. And uh, then he spends uh, one, one, one year working at, on his novitiate, uh, at learning how to, the whole life of uh, St. Francis and how to be a uh, Franciscan, and then concludes finally in 1945 all of his religious and theological studies and is ordained a Roman Catholic priest and a member of the Franciscan order in 1945. And this is a very difficult period in his life. Uh, he's away from his family at a very young age. He has to uh, adjust to that, to a, a new setting, to a very disciplined life. To become a priest in the Catholic Church in this period of time involved a very rigorous uh, training, very rigorous education, a great deal of discipline, uh, a great deal of being sheltered from the rest of the world. And this was a, a tremendous uh, 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 a reaction that he had to undergo, uh, an experience that he had to go uh, at, th- at this period of time. I wanted to, just, since we have a number of students here, share a little bit about his the kind of education that he received, which was very rigorous, but also with a great deal of discipline, which helped shape him a great deal. Father Virgil, in our, in our interviews, had this to say about the kind of uh, education that he got uh, in the first years here at St. Anthony's and then the first two years Uh, in college here at St. Anthony's. This is what he had to say. He said, in addition to learning Latin, Greek, and Spanish, we had to also learn German. I had to take five years of German. We read German texts and sang German songs. This is in part because many of the uh, priests at St. Anthony's were of German background. Uh, We memorized some of Schiller in German. He went on to say, like any other high school, we had the usual curriculum. There were science and there was science and math that never appealed that much to me. We read Demosthenes in Greek and Don Quixote in Spanish. History, English literature, music, and of course religion rounded out the curriculum. My favorites consisted of languages, literature and history and religion. By the time I graduated, I could read Cicero and Virgil in Latin and classical Greek literature. I must say that the Franciscans gave us an excellent education and a very formal one. Father Owen de Silva also offered classes in music and drama. I took a liking to drama. I had the main role in a play called The Nervous Wreck, and in another play, a musical, Ten Nights in a Bar Room. So I guess it wasn't altogether that strict. There were a little. Ten Nights in a Bar Room. I played the daughter. They weren't that strict. I played the daughter of the drunkard. In one scene, I entered the bar to bring my father back home. I sang, Father, dear, Father, dear Father, come home with me now. Come home, come home, come home. Oh, Father, come home. I don't do justice to it. When we did the interview, she actually sang that to me. (laughs) All of this uh, extracurricular activity helped to dispel my feelings of homesickness. This is one of the things that Father Virgil says, I mean, the homesickness of being away, and 1415, away from his mother, from his brothers. 
All of this extracurricular activity helped to dispel my feelings of homesickness, as did my growing appreciation of the companionship of fellow students. All of our studying, and in fact every aspect of our lives in the seminary, was affected by the strict discipline imposed by the faculty. Discipline was part of our education and our socialization to Franciscan life. We awoke at 6 in the morning. We, went, we then went to chapel. This was followed by study hall before breakfast. In study hall, everyone sat at his own desk while a priest paraded up and down to make sure we studied. After breakfast, we went off to classes. At mid-morning, we had another study hall. Then more classes, lunch, and another study period in the afternoon, followed by recreation and study period before and after dinner. I wish all our students were like that. <laughs> I know they are. At 9 o'clock, we were in bed. I don't regret this early discipline. I acquired good study habits. And so uh, this is the kind of pattern that begins to set in his life. He's ordained in 1945. He goes on to further studies in theology, study of religion at Catholic University in Washington, and then comes back by the early 1950s back to Santa Barbara, to the Mission Santa Barbara, to... Uh, the uh, theological school at the, that was here at that time, and he's been here ever since. Uh, he helped train many uh, uh, others who went on to become Franciscans, a Franciscan priest, uh, and uh, has held every single possible position at the mission uh, here in Santa Barbara. The next very important part of his life was into the 1960s. Uh, this was a very uh, important period, not only in his life, but in the life of the Catholic Church and the life of his order, the Franciscans. Because in general, of course, as many of you know, the 1960s was a very tumultuous period. Civil rights, uh, anti-war activities, uh, the um, revolutions in the Third World, uh, the new feminist movement, the new environmental movements. Certainly in this country, it was a very difficult and trying times as change of all kinds was, was being experienced. And the church itself, not only in this country, but internationally was going through these experiences. It was highlighted by an important series of, uh, of uh, meetings that were held uh, between 1962 and 1965 in Rome at the Vatican. These were meetings that were called by then Pope John XXIII, meetings that were called Vatican Council II. And Vatican Council II had a significant impact on the future of the church because it basically was an attempt by the church to begin to reassess its uh, role in the world, to reassess where it stood. And out of that came some winds of change and some uh, fresh air into the church as an institution. Among other things, opening the church much more to the modern world and beginning to make the church more than the church of the priest and of the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals and even of the pope himself, but basically to accept and to declare that the church was all the people, all of the members of the church, all of the lay people, all uh, individuals, lay people, people who were not themselves uh, clergy, that they themselves were part of the, the universal church. And so these were very uh, important times and very trying times because Vatican Council II called for the church to begin to change, not only in general but at the local level. So Father Virgil here at the mission uh, is in charge of the theological school. And so he's in charge of how to implement these changes, how to bring about these changes, and yet there's no real direction. No one is basically saying, these are the changes you have to do. So it was a very difficult period of time. You had uh, some of the, the, the Franciscans, some of the seminary, seminarians who were here beginning to, to suggest all kinds of more radical changes that in many ways Father Virgil felt were going a little too... Uh, to, to the extreme, and so the, he mentions in the book that this was the most trying period of, uh, of, of his life. But it was also an exciting period, because of the, not only because of the changes, but because the mission and the seminary were also becoming involved in events outside of the, um, the seminary itself, to begin to be involved in civil rights issues, uh, other kinds of community issues. So that, but it was a very important period uh, in his life and of the, and of the church. One of the aspects about Father Virgil's life is that he's very much what I call a community priest. He is someone who has not only restricted his role to the church itself, in this case to the mission, but also uh, working outside, to working in the community, embracing people outside of the community, not only Catholics but also non-Catholics. 
Uh, he's best known, for example, to, for his involvement in the annual fiesta in Santa Barbara that's, at, uh, that's every uh, August. But he sees uh, fiesta not just as this kind of party time, but also as a period that brings people together. He has a kind of spirituality about the fiesta, that it's a time when people can come together from all different kinds of backgrounds and basically come together as one, as one community. But of course, his work in the community transcends that. He's worked with uh, people of other faiths. Uh, one of the things that came out of Vatican Council II was this concept of, of ecumenism. Ecumenism is beginning to be involved in a dialogue and in a relationship with people outside of your own faith. And Father Virgil was a leader of that here in Santa Barbara. And uh, he's been involved in many, many other kinds of community events and activities. And that's why, in many ways, he represents what I call a, a community a priest. Uh, one, of the, one of the things as a community priest in 1983, and it's kind of somewhat of a highlight in his life, he entertained Queen Elizabeth, who came to the mission, uh, to visit, uh, was it visiting Santa Barbara? She had been visiting with President Reagan up at his ranch uh, uh, north of Santa Barbara, and uh, Queen Elizabeth came to visit the mission, and Father Virgil was in charge of her visit, and he mentions how, what a nerve-wracking period of time, because weeks, indeed even months before, the Secret Service and the British Secret Service had to come in and, you know, case everything out and make sure that every, there would be no problems. And indeed, the day that Queen Elizabeth arrived, there was even armed security people on top of the, uh, at the mission. And uh, on, to, to make matters even more tense, as he describes in the book, it was a, a day similar like the, today. We had a, a driving rain, even worse rain than we had today. And so this was all just made it even more nerve-wracking. But the Queen came and everything went fine. In fact, the, the, after months of preparation, the Queen must, must have been here for about 15 or 20 minutes and then off she went. But, uh, but it was, uh, it was uh, an interesting period for, for, for Father Virgil. Let me conclude by saying uh, these things and then well, we'll have Father Virgil up here to, to talk further and to maybe read a bit from the book. And I'm going to address this, of course, especially to some of my own students who are here. I would like to say a word about the use of oral history in this project, especially to my own students and others who will be doing oral history projects. After Father Virgil consented to do the interviews, one of the first, one of the first things I did was to have him summarize his life story that would give me an outline or a script for doing the interviews. Since I wanted to cover his life, we proceeded chronologically, attempting to link each interview of about an hour or an hour and a half with particular periods in his life. Of course, some periods, such as his lengthy seminary years, covered several interviews. Father Virgil was very disciplined in covering each episode. When he deviated, it was usually to include a running commentary throughout the interviews about his evolving spirituality, or what we call in the title, his spiritual journey. But these deviations only added to the completeness of the narrative. Padre is not only an autobiography, but a book about spirituality. My interrelationship with Father Virgil by structuring the interviews and by asking the questions, as other students of testimonials or testimonios observe, reveal a co-authorship. The interviewer is not a passive listener, but is active in authoring the narrative. Left to himself, it is very likely that Father Virgil would have written a very different text. The interviews were transcribed, edited, and were the basis for my writing each of the chapters and the entire book. Father Virgil read the drafts and contributed his own editing in addition to adding some new material. The work of the oral historian is not just doing the interviews, but transcribing and editing them to come up with a coherent narrative. In the end, the oral historian, to use cinematic terms, is a combination of producer, director, editor, and writer. I would also like to say that we are making arrangements to jointly house the interview tapes, transcripts, and drafts of the book, both here at UCSB and at the Mission Santa Barbara archives. This way they will be available to researchers at both locations. Although the book has many academic and historical connections, in the end, it is about preserving the life story and legacy of a wonderful and giving human being whose life has touched the history of our community, leaving us better off for it. I wrote and produced this book not for critics or other intellectuals, although I hope they will engage with it, but for the community and for the future generation of this community. Public history, 
my role as a public intellectual, whatever term one wants to use to describe the project, the basic objective was to record and document the life of Father Virgil, whose life should be an inspiration to all of us and to those who follow us. Please join me in a UCSB welcome to Father Virgil Cordano. Thank you, Mario. Well, I listened to you. <laughs> All sorts of emotions were experienced. Um, I, I don't have time to sing Father, Dear Father, Come Home with me now. <laughs> but um, one of the things and you brought up in the book, but how can you remain very humble in the midst of all this adulation? Being educated, I worked it out quite well. well first of all, my own self-evaluation depends upon my relationship with God. I get along very well with God. God knows me through and through. Other people don't know me that well. So I, that's my basic security. But then, uh, beyond that, listening to people praise me and criticize me, I worked out, and I have a section here on, on humility, you have to be proudly humble and humbly proud. There's such a thing as a, a correlationship of True humility and justifiable pride. So, but further explanation would take a little time. But I, I worked that out quite well. And uh, when I was young, I think it you know, felt quite elated. But later on, <laughs> I faced up the truth about myself. And really, with uh, my faith and support I have, I'm quite, quite pleased with myself. And I recognize my own limitations too. Anyway, the book for me was an occasion for me to see what I would call the providential hand of God through situations at the time which didn't make sense. It was very, very difficult. And looking back now, because of the spirituality that I came to understand, thank God I had an educated spirituality, nothing worse than an uneducated religious fanatic. I began to realize that what at the time were the most very difficult for me, with hindsight, turned out to be blessings. So thoughts like this, or an evaluation, thanks to uh, Mario Garcia, have enriched my life uh, at the present time. I'm very, very happy that I did it, although it was hard work. So this personal, this inner journey of mine is what it's primarily about. And I think I mentioned somewhere here, if I didn't, I should, there's nothing more important than one's spiritual journey, who you are before God and before others. And so I've grown in appreciation of it and uh, building on it at the present time. But besides that, uh, Professor Garcia got me to dis state my opinion about all sorts of uh, current issues, some of them are rather difficult. He would question me, and I'd, I'd say things off the top of my head, and I got the text, and said, no, that's not properly balanced. Uh, theologians say, I'm a heretic, or whatever it may be. So I had to help me, in fact, challenge me to clarify my own theological thinking. See, some of the topics we, um, uh, we discussed, my understanding of motherhood, because of my own mother, the uh, Dealing with the dualism, the separation of the divine and the human. I find so many, many people who look upon religion as saying your prayers, going to church, and the rest of life is sort of separated. In the book, again and again, I say there's a spirituality to everything. Politics, especially very much needed today, educated. And uh, anything else, entertainment, whatever it may be. God, in my estimation, God is the author of not so just the supernatural, the otherworldly, but everything natural, including evolution, is God's doing. So that that integration of what ordinarily is separating theology called grace and nature, I always believed it, and I had the opportunity to express it here. Now it has something about Vatican II, and that throughout I also deal with the tension between individuality, individualism, and uh, community. 
There's a necessary tension between our separate selves and then our relational selves. And thank God I had the opportunity to work all that out, and I gladly, with benefit to myself, live the tension. That's the number one tension. I'm different and same. Then I have quite a bit about uh, fundamentalism over against uh, educated understanding of religion. Quite a bit about religious women. I taught young girls becoming nuns besides uh, young men becoming priests. And they corrected my, uh, my, uh, my language. I have avoid sexist language. So God is just much she is, is he. <laughs> which, which, which was very fine. And then pluralism, enculturation, diversity and unity, and local things like the Rancheras Visitors, which I've blessed for about four years, Tom Stork ran the town, Pearl Chase, Duke Sedgwick, very prominent here in the art section here, and um, religious education of adults and youth, marriage, divorce, and annulments in the Catholic Church, uh, the, well, the Queen's visit, the true humility, Spirituality and self. There's been a, a, a change from traditional Judeo-Christian uh, spirituality and others to uh, subjectivism and the self. And so I, I get into that. Also, the changes in the development of a doctrine. Well, to put it, put it uh, briefly, the church is not God. That's a very important statement. It's a human, limited understanding revelation awaiting retelling uh, on and on. Right now, I'd like to be Pope for half hour. I make some radical changes and then retire. <laughs> it would only take me maybe 15 minutes. And we're a little slow. I'm, I'm very critical of the church here. I'm surprised that some of the fun, we have a number of not only fundamentalist clergy, but fundamentalist laity, so I'll be hearing from them also. I've been, I've been accused of heresy to the, card, the cardinals down south. I have to explain myself, etc., etc. The implications are you don't know theology, and even though you're cardinal, and I, I think I know a little bit more. <laughs> I also have something to say about the proper interpretation of the Bible, given the literary historical criticism, and the ordination of women, celibacy, the the pedophilia scandal. Those are some things I uh, uh, deal with. Now I want to, since we have the Walter Capps uh, Center out here, these are some of the words that I had to say about Walter Capps, dear friend of mine, as as is Lois now. Oh, I'm in the one. Uh, who arranged for the, the students I had to come out to UCSB. That was a big change. Ordinarily, you go only to Catholic universities. It was a struggle for me, but I got them to come out here. And I used to give talks to sororities and fraternities. We had one big discussion on birth control. As you can imagine the, the ribbing I took on that. So and then in desperation, I said, well, I'm making a contribution to this overpopulation, being a celibate, so if so many people join me, we'll lick the problem. Anyway, <laughs> that was at Campbell Hall. Anyway, the students became involved in civil rights issues. They went to UCSB and participated in teach-ins, conferences, and demonstrations of civil rights. We encouraged this connection with the university. These, this included close ties with Professor Walter Capps, the Department of Religious Studies. In fact, I was involved with the Religious Studies when Professor Brown was here, right at the beginning. Uh, he was doing ex exciting work bringing the campus and the community together to discuss and act on the great social issues facing the country. Walter was one of the most sincere and honest individuals I've ever met. He became a dear, dear friend of mine. He was... Uh, Lutheran, but he was, he was comfortable Lutheran and Catholic both. No trouble at all. In fact, he was comfortable with all religions. He personified integrity. It was my privilege to get to know him and his wonderful wife, Lois, and their closely knit family. Walter used to come often to the mission to talk to our students. Lutheran by birth from the Midwest, but he's quite at ease with Catholic spirituality. 
You know, theology separates us and spirituality unites us. In his family often attended Mass at the mission. Walter also used to take his students on a retreat at Big Sur, Camaldolese Monastery up north. So that's on uh, Walter, and I have fond, fond memories of him. One of the, um, uh, what I just, what I have worded as, what I believe is common to all spiritualities is the following. I hope this is uh, acceptable. I came to see that I, and hopefully others, had to advance from being exclusive to becoming inclusive of all. From particularism, Catholic, to universalism, all religions, even people without religion. From a confining state of separateness to oneness with all persons and everything. From my own limited interest to awareness of the concerns of others. From promotion of just my unique self development of my relational and communal self, from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. This opening of my true self to the true selves of others must, to my surprise, and although not intended, serve my own self-growth. That's the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of life. In giving, you receive much more in return. I, I have the expressions of my spirituality throughout the book as called for in different uh, sections. Um, Vatican, a number of things said in Vatican II, here's something that, uh, dealing with fundamentalism, which is a, a terrible curse today, fundamentalism, not only religion, other aspects too. Um, For us in a theological seminary, the most immediate changes that appeared even while Vatican II was taking place, if not earlier, had to do with the need of renewal. Self-examination opened up for us and for other religious orders, as well as the entire church, what would prove to be difficult but necessary. In some cases, painful uh, changes or suggestions for change. Uh, well, we had no... Uh, uh, Let's see, um, that's not the one I want. Mario talked about that. Let's see. Um, oh, here's, here's what I want. This tells you something of the trouble I, when I was reported to higher authorities. number of Catholic people didn't like the acceptance of ecumenism and dialogue with other religions. Some seemingly went so far as to believe that you had to be a Catholic to be saved. They had their own limited understanding of Catholicism. They were very monolithic and simplistically dogmatic. They favored only one way of expressing the truth. They couldn't tolerate a more pluralistic church. Maybe they would have to think too much. They represented a type of Catholic fundamentalism the Vatican II was rejecting. The fundamentalist reaction was less a theological one and really more an emotional and psychological one. I had to deal with these people. You couldn't talk theology. The issue was they felt very insecure with change. That was really the issue. And they used the Bible uh, with a fundamental interpretation to justify it. Vatican II threatened their sense of security. Everything had to be black and white. They wanted a church where everything was simplified, where there was a clear right and easily find wrong. I wonder if they have ever come to know and experience what is essential in spirituality. If you have a good spirituality going for you, you don't make too much of doctrinal differences. In fact, I think it's very healthy to have doctrinal differences. But if your spirituality falsely depends upon doctrinal uh, unanimity, uniformity, well, then, of course, you're in trouble. So I have, I have that uh, throughout the uh, book. And uh, another th point that I made again and again is there's a spiritual significance to everything in life. Everything, because it impacts the person. I would say that my own personal growth was affected more by so-called incidents outside of former religion than what happened in former religion. My family ties, 
living in a community, uh, my interest in sports, by the way, I was very interested in sports, all these different things. So I've written articles now on a spirituality of parties, because it's unitive. God, after all, created this human, from my viewpoint, so there has to be a spiritual significance for it. To give you some idea of the correlationship of ideas that I came up, thanks to my education. Now, when I finished my studies, pre-Vatican II, I thought I knew it all. And I wanted to get out and save the world. I was going to be a pastor. And much to my disappointment, but wisely done, I was told, no, you need higher studies. So off I went. If I didn't go, I don't know where I'd be today. So again, providentially, the many things that at first didn't appeal to me, with hindsight, given a, a spirituality of change and surprise, turned out to be blessings for me. So just a little personal note, I hope that each one of you reading the book will discover the uh, challenge uh, of your own spiritual journey and discover what you have in common with others and also how your separateness is, uh, say, your particularism in no way, in fact, is enhanced by universalism. I'm a better Catholic for ecumenism. So I, it's like in marriage, I tell young couples, here, John, you'll be more John for becoming uh, husband and father. And Mary, you'll be more Mary, the individual are, in becoming uh, a wife and mother. It's rather interesting. And thanks to Mario, I was able to express all those things. Otherwise, I don't know where I'd be today. Thank you very much. And to thank everyone uh, for being here for some questions or people want to make some comments for a short period of time. But if uh, some of you need to run off to a class, by all means, go ahead and do that. Okay. Did you have a question or a comment? Yes. Uh, I know it's been a long time since the... Uh, we have microphones here because we're taping this. It's been a long time since the Reformation. But <laughs> I know that, that uh, when you disagree with the Catholic Church, I thought there was some kind of action taken. Is there, has that been done away with now? Is, is there any chance of a uh, like disciplinary action for speaking out against church? Can, can they discipline you for some things you say in the book? <laughs> no, I got, I got the word from God. I don't know what I'm going to say. Well, first of all, any religion has to undergo reformation all the time. And I, I look at some of this might be considered negative as positive. And I think the uh, Catholic Church has assimilated many Protestant understandings of Christianity and is better for it. Um, in my reading, I've seen that there are more and more theological uh, except, uh, unity now, say, uh, say Catholics and Lutherans. Uh, so there is a, um, like the, the idea of faith and good works has been somewhat resolved. The big question is still Vatican authority. And uh, there are a number of Catholic authors that have their solution to it. And I pray for a reformation of the Vatican. Some other questions or comments? <clears throat> I want, if I may, uh, and I've, we've done this at some of the other book signings, I want to interject a little bit. Well, Father Virgil interjects at some humor, but there's, there's other aspects of humor, of his humor, that comes out in the book. And with his permission, I'd like to read a little short humorous passage. One of the things that Father Virgil has done over the years as a community priest is that he, he's asked to bless a lot of different uh, groups and, and uh, meetings and things like that. And one group that he always blesses every year is a group called the Rancheros Visitadores. And these are a group of horse men and women who, uh, who uh, live in this area or in other areas, and once a year they come together, and they've all, have always asked Father Virgil to come and bless them, which he does. And uh, he talked a little bit about that group in the book, and, and he, but here's one very, a very humorous passage related to that, if I may. He, he said, One particular blessing I'll never forget was in 1989, and on this occasion the blessing was in the Santa Ynez Valley. As I began my prayer, to my surprise and that of the assembled rancheros and others, two male streakers 
completely naked, ran in front of me. I have no idea who they were and why they did this. The assembled crowd roared with laughter at this incident. I waited for the laughter to die down, and then, with the timing of a stand-up comic, I said, I have a word from the Lord for those two gentlemen. Repent, for your end is in sight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Did you want to comment in about any other aspects of the book that uh, we didn't really uh, touch on? Or? I don't know if anybody else had any other questions. Living on Mission Street, uh, once a year at least, sometimes it seems like it's more frequently, a lot of motorcycles yeah, go up right. the street. And about 20 minutes later, they all come back down. And the rumor is that you're blessing these folks, is that correct? That's right. What do they call themselves? Well, the Harley Davidson people, cyclists. And uh, they came to me, says, we, we have a group here. I'm sure. Well, I really don't so much bless things. I recognize everything as a blessing. A little different. It is a blessing. We recognize. So we started out with 20 or 30, and now we have 200 to 300. I know. And an incident happened. <laughs> and the neighbors have complained to me about the noise, reported to the police and all that. I had to deal with that. But the, um, uh, a couple come, came along <laughs> And as the girl says, uh, you might have had my picture with you. I says, why? She says, my mother doesn't approve of me writing with my boyfriend. Is, but she sees a picture of the two of us. She, she may give me her approval. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's, um, again, it's, it's surprising the number of people you relate to and, and become one with on the occasion of even non-religious incidents. There's a, I believe theologically, de facto, there's a profound interrelatedness of everything. Interrelates everything. Heaven and earth and all, all different peoples. I believe very much in that, short of, short of pantheism. So once in a while, it just strikes me in an incident like that, that we have to live this, get the tension between separatism and uh, this interconnectedness or this oneness. And I, I believe, so I put the emphasis on the oneness. I would say more panentheism, as it's called, all in God, rather than pantheism, all is God. But just short of that. You know, uh, Father Virgil, of course you, you dedicate the book to, to your mother, and in many ways uh, your mother plays a central role in, in the book itself. Talk a little bit about <clears throat> having to leave your mother and your brothers at such an early age and, you know, of course, that related to your homesickness, but talk a little bit about your relationship with your mother. Well, as I mentioned, we were a poor family. My father, God bless him, was not a provider. He was a gambler. He doesn't mind me saying it now. And um, there was my mother. I, call, I mentioned the book. Um, in fact, I used to do janitor work at 5 o'clock after school. I have to go down 8th and J, Mittal building. Sacramento and clean buildings with my mother. If I came late, she'd swing the mop at us, my brother Ray and I. <laughs> and um, the uh, and that connection, I began to realize how, li how difficult life was for my mother. When I was even young, I had a tremendous interest in studies. I stayed up late at night studying. This is elementary school. One night I was studying, I noticed my mother's bedroom door is open a little. Now, uh, I get choked up with this, but anyway. There she was on her knees. Made a tremendous impression on me. She got a, a spiritual strength to deal with my father, God bless him, and to raise his kids. So um, I could see why when I... I knew I had this calling, but to tell the truth, I didn't want it. I, I, I went to two years of high school to get rid of the idea because I knew it would hurt my mother my younger brother, Ray, in fact, later on, before he died, he said I was his best friend. We used to fight, his brothers did. But. So uh, I didn't have the heart to tell my mother. Finally, I told her. 
And I said, so why do you want to become a priest? Now, this is old theology. I had to save my soul, which I wouldn't say that today. So you could save your soul as a layman. I said, yeah, but don't blame me. Blame God. I got the calling. I couldn't get rid of it. So I left. My, oh, my younger, older brother, oldest brother, did go to high school, no high school education. He stopped working. He said, you should stay home and work. He worked and worked and worked. He ends up a multimillionaire, put in the first shopping center in Northern California. Therefore, for the grace of God, would I go. <laughs> and so he didn't even say goodbye to me. Twelve years later, he's a millionaire. So we had a big, wild reception at his home where all the Italians drank heartily, and they celebrated. This boy found it very difficult to leave home. It's interesting. All these things are, given, given time, it all makes sense. But anyway, I um, have tremendous uh, respect for her. And she's been an inspiration for me. Whatever my problems were, they were not comparable to what she went through. Let me remind you that uh, there are some books back here for those of you that might be interested in picking up a copy of, uh, of our book and having Father Virgil sign it. Uh, it, it you're certainly, uh, uh, certainly be nice if you did. Uh, I think we've pretty much come to a closure, and Father Virgil and I want to thank everyone who put this together and for all of you for being here th this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you very much.